Hello and welcome to episode number 331 of the Armin Show podcast, where we have been booming right into January 2022. We are learning more, meeting new individuals, understanding more about ourselves. And if you haven't subscribed, you should tell people and share and leave a review of whatnot. On this episode here, we will be talking about a topic that is the basis behind so much content on the internet that is posted on various social media because people have had some internal anguish of sorts in relation to the concept of heartbreak, okay? And we have the author of Heartbreak here today, A Personal and Scientific Journey. The author is Florence Williams. Florence, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I'm glad to have you on. You're also author of The Nature Fix. The value of nature is very relevant, especially now, actually before, the whole time. Nature has been wonderful. (laughs) Now. More uh, than ever. Now more than ever. mm -hmm. We value the greenery and such and the outdoor space. It's a wonderful thing. Now, you have authored multiple books. Nature was unrelated to heartbreak. How did you transition from book to book? and any past writings, how we transition to this one. Yes, thanks. Um, Heartbreak is my third book and I'm a science journalist. So I am very interested in writing about topics in my own life that make me curious to learn more. And so um, in each of my books, I've done that. Um, where I've written in the first person, but in ways that, um, you know, sort of extend out to more universal experiences that other people may be having. So it really drives my, my own, um, my journalism. And for the Nature Fix book, I uh, had moved from living in the mountains of Colorado and Montana to Washington, D.C., <laughs> and I felt like this stress bomb went off in my brain. I wanted to understand why I felt so different when I was living away from nature and what did the science have to say about, um, you know, this concept of nature deficit disorder? Like, was that a real thing? And how did our external landscapes get reflected in our internal landscapes? And then, um, you know, actually just about as that book was coming out a few years ago, um, my husband of 25 years um, decided that he didn't want to be married anymore. And I had met him when I was 18 years old. So I had never experienced heartbreak before. Um, I was just really knocked out by how much it hurt. And the science journalist in me wanted to know why. <laughs> like, what is it about the way our brains are wired that make this kind of attachment loss, you know, so painful? And, um, you know, I felt like my body was sort of, you know, getting sicker and, I was, you know, just, just really um, suffering. And so I wanted to find out why and then how to get better. And so that's, um, that's what launched this, this book. And it really, it is more personal, for sure, than my other books. Makes sense. That is a real package deal. When I caught that detail, that is 25 years, including a hefty chunk of the formative years of one's growth. It's a huge impact. And then this is larger than the heartbreak that some, um, was a 14 and a half year old to be talking about from like a three day uh, <laughs> meeting well, with somebody. <laughs> yes, but when you're 14, you know, everything is a huge deal. Um, so actually a heartbreak in your teenage years can be really impactful um, for the rest of your life, even in some ways. 
good point right that that like brief like two minute interlude that was the one that was for the whole <laughs> life i was going to lead that's funny right those early years sometimes it can be very pronounced yes yes exactly and your brain isn't fully formed yet and uh you can take those losses pretty hard because you don't have a, a strong sense of yourself yet mm -hmm. um, but even when you're 50 which is what i was um really hard because i had never been an adult who wasn't married and i didn't know what it was like to be alone um i was really freaked out i was really freaked out if you were not freaked out this book would not exist okay it would be impossible <laughs> <laughs> those go together if it was like a casual thursday exactly there would have been no that's something it's it's a it's a really um impactful story because that's the whole package. There was no, from 18 until all the way to then, that is a, like, you're attached to another person yeah. strongly. Yeah. So not having them is like a, like a death almost kind of. It, it really is your body registers that loss in some pretty profound ways. So when you um, are with a partner, your bodies actually co-regulate. So your brain waves kind of sync up when you're doing the same things doesn't happen when you're with a stranger. Um, we know this from MRI, brain imaging studies. Um, your cortisol levels, your stress hormones kind of sync up. Um, your heart rate sync up, your respiration syncs up. You know, you spend a lot of time with someone and we're mammals. So, you know, we are built to be hyper social, to be really responsive to the presence of others. And our nervous systems are used to regulating kind of based on that proximity to close attachments in our lives. So when that primary attachment disappears and actually rejects you and then disappears, um, you know, our, our sort of prehistoric primitive brains go into a real state of threat, you know, where it feels like we're about to be preyed upon, you know, by some large animal, we don't feel safe. Um, you know, it, it, it just registers in our immune systems uh, in all kinds of ways that now we are perhaps alone in the world and, you know, we better, um, we better kick our immune systems into gear, which turns out sometimes is not a helpful response. And we can talk more about that. This is a valid point. You mentioned that in the book, how maybe being a uh, sad is more damaging than an actual health condition because it resonates within you. How can being sad from such anguish of heartbreak or something like a heartbreak, a minor one, be health healthfully negative yeah i so I, I i spent time with a biological anthropologist named helen fisher who writes about what happens to our brains when we fall in love but also what happens you know after love on the other side and what she said is that uh you know when you have a toothache you know or a broken arm or something like that the pain does uh, register in our brains um but it tends to be temporary you know, it might go away pretty soon. Um, and when we have a heartbreak or a big grief, it actually sits in similar spots in the brain that monitor pain. So that's kind of interesting. Like our brain actually doesn't have a huge distinction between social pain and physical pain. So it's really a pain. Like when people talk about the metaphors, you know, of a broken heart, um, you know, it, the, the breaking part 
actually feels that way in your brain, but it can last an even much longer time. And then it messes up with other parts of your brain, <laughs> having to do with the social rejection, having to do um, with the sort of existential dread, having to do with your self-concept. Like, who am I now that I'm not the wife of this person who I've been married to for decades? Um, you know, what do I want to be when I grow up, even though I'm already 50? You know, so it brings in all <laughs> kinds of different layers of complexity the way you process the pain so it's 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 like it's like a physical pain but it's even longer and kind of worse right i like that what do i want to be when i grow up because i have to think about this now i didn't have to think about this two years ago it wasn't crossing my mind in that way <laughs> dang right and how are you going to pay for the rest of your life and how are you going to pay for health insurance and all these things that especially for women um become much more salient issues after divorce. So we know that, you know, women end up with fewer resources. Um, twice, they're twice as likely to end up in poverty as the men who leave them. Um, so there are a lot of gender issues at play there as well. Hmm. Now, one thing that comes to mind is before heartbreak, there is an up. Now, this is for the brief beginning, but there is an up portion. Then there's somewhat of a flattening that it becomes more like a regular time between two people and then at some point there could be a heartbreak what are some of the qualities of that joyous uh, connection between people and then kind of the averaging that occurs over time where they're together but it's not like super stupendous every moment and then potentially uh what are the downfalls of the heartbreak point yeah well you know when you're falling in love it's super exciting mm -hmm. Um, our brain kind of likes to be in love. It's sort of built for that because we are built for attachment. Um, we're, you know, it, it starts with attachment to your parents and attachment to your babies. And then, you know, um, from that attachment to your parents, it, it be, turns into sort of romantic attachment. So um, all these happy hormones start flooding, you know, when we're meeting someone that we're attracted to. We get the serotonin, um, we get the dopamine while we're flirting. Um, once things become physical, then there are these, these other neurotransmitters like oxytocin, you know, that start getting released. And those lead to feelings of bonding and feelings of safety uh, and attachment. And, and for men, they, they get this neurotransmitter, more of this um, called vasopressin, which makes them want to protect their mate and makes them want to sort of play house, you know, and get sort of territorial with their mate. Um, and, and again, like, you know, there's synchrony in the brain, synchrony in, um, you know, sort of our, our daily rhythms and our daily cycles. And then when that suddenly goes away, our, our brains register that as a really stress-inducing loss. Uh, and there's an evolutionary reason for that, you know, which is that we're supposed to really miss our mate who has just disappeared. We're supposed to, you know, want him or her back. Um, we're supposed to sort of crave him or her and pine for him or her because, you know, usually they do come back or they often did, you know, if they just went out to, for, to hunt, to hunt some food, you didn't want to like go out and find a new partner, you know, while they were gone for two days, yeah. you wanted to miss them. You wanted them to come home too right. and, um, and want to come home. But when the partner disappears for good, then you just have this kind of vacuum of good hormones. No good hormones are left. You're just like cycling and craving and missing and sad. And, uh, and they don't come back. And it, you know, it takes a long time for things to kind of regulate and return to normal. Mm -hmm. 
you've had that connection for a while and then it's no longer. People might think I am emotionless in some regards, but no, I have had <laughs> elements of this as well. And when it has occurred, it, it does feel like there was a mutual story and then the story is not a mutual story. Right. Would you relate with that concept? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I guess you when when you're when you have a partner, you sort of think of a future together and you're building you're co-creating a life. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when you're on your own, all of a sudden you're each gonna tell yourself your own story. And everyone has their own story. So the person who leaves has a story for why the relationship ended, uh, you know, what they need to do next. And the person who is left might have a really different story and, and may be completely confused and completely blindsided and not understand it. Uh, and, and yet the person is still kind of around. Maybe you still follow them on social media. Maybe you're co-parenting children together. Maybe you're sharing a pet or you still own real estate or, you know, there are all kinds of ways that that detachment, you know, isn't sort of complete. And that makes it really complicated, too. That's true. Unlike on the death where there's like this sort of sense of finality and and maybe some acceptance um, that can happen sometime sooner and, and often also with a death that you don't have the same necessarily um, sense of rejection. Right. It's not on you. It, it, this occurred and we're all adjusting to that. Yeah. And I mean, both of them are super hard, but they're hard in different ways sometimes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> One is like, but there's a, uh, could there be, uh, but, but what about... There's, there's open loops versus death is more of a closed loop in total yeah although i think with both there's a huge sense of loneliness afterwards a huge sense of grief a huge sense of uncertainty um you don't know what's next and and also again a lot of anxiety associated with all those feelings mm -hmm. and and there are lots of ways to be heartbroken too not just romantic ways but um you know we have um heartbreak over loss of community over loss of landscape um, you know, in climate change now, people are seeing the landscapes where they grew up, um, you know, on fire or underwater. And with the pandemic, you know, we've sometimes lost lost a sense of our larger community. We've lost our sort of looser, weak ties. We may be feeling lonely for all kinds of reasons right now. Multiple kinds of heartbreak in yeah. connection with things that we are attached to or have gotten used to in some way. And when it changes, we're like, oh, I can't, I, I can't deal with this. The process Yeah, this. really hard, really hard. We're missing something that was. Mm -hmm. Now, if someone goes through heartbreak, their immune system, what's their immune system thinking at that time? How does it go for that? Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, when we've been sort of kicked out of our kin group or turned out by our major our attachment primary partner, um, our brains think that we are alone in the jungle. Like we are about to be pounced upon by a predator because we're not surrounded by the usual, um, you know, deep attachments. And so our nervous system really um, goes into fight or flight. It goes into sort of a, a threat state. It's anticipating some kind of attack. And so um, the way the immune system seems to process this and, and we know this from, from various um, studies of blood tests, including studies I did on my own blood, our immune systems, our white blood cells put out more cells that fight um, bacterial infections, like a wound. So we produce more inflammation to get ready for an attack when we're alone. 
which is really interesting. And at the same time, since we can't do everything, we downregulate the, the cells that fight viruses and viruses are spread in groups. So that may, that one might not be as immediate a threat. The problem is, you know, when, when we're heartbroken for a long time, that inflammation stays really high and chronic inflammation is really bad for our health. Um, so that's been well-documented, you know, it, it leads to um, everything from early death, you know, to dementia, diabetes, um, cardio, lots of different cardiovascular um, problems. And, and we also know from, from these big studies that people who have been divorced um, are more likely to have heart attacks. They are more likely to have dementia. They're more likely to have um, a whole host of inflammation-related illnesses. Um, and they're more likely, they're 23% more likely to die young, to, to die early than their married peers. I think about these things often about how it's good to stay in a positive state for ourselves or whatever we find to be jovial because if we don't do the things we like or find ways to keep ourselves in good standing, if we put ourselves into a lower state of some form uh, in internal joy or too much anguish, now we're inviting like problems to multiply upon themselves versus if we didn't get into that state we're all right. Maybe our internal immune system is more intact and we can weather more uh, gaps better. Well, I think it's also okay to feel anguish and it's okay to feel pain. I mean, if you're stuffing it, if you're like denying those natural emotions, that's also bad for your health. And, you know, those, those emotions will sort of come back to bite you in a, in a less healthy way. So, you know, what the experts here say is, you know, feel your heartbreak, feel your suffering, feel your pain, but don't wallow in it a lot longer than you need to. Um, and, you know, happiness itself is not necessarily great for your immune cells. What's great for your immune cells is, you know, authentic feelings, working through your emotions, expressing your emotions, even sometimes the uncomfortable ones, and um, doing things in your life that are meaningful. Even if that means sometimes you're not going to be smiling and giggling, you know, you're going to be working hard, you know, on things that are important to you um, and making sacrifices for things that are important to you. But people who, who do that actually have, have the healthiest immune systems that we see. Going with the flow of life. Now, one item you mentioned in the book and have a quote on, and you mentioned it also, is solitude. And I have thought a lot about solitude when I am uh working on something or i'm by myself at times writing down or uh, thinking of my own internal world can you describe solitude in during the marriage let's say and then what's solitude like afterward after the divorce after heartbreak yeah that was something i thought about a lot uh as i went through this this process because uh, as i say i hadn't really lived alone before uh, although I was someone who was comfortable being alone, you know, sort of from time to time. I mean, I'm kind of an introvert. I like to read. I like to exercise. I like Long to do things books. by myself. Yay, books. Um, but I was really afraid of being lonely, which is different from solitude, right? So in solitude, solitude feels like it can be really creative. Like it's space for you to like think and create and have some stillness to do things that are important to you. Whereas loneliness, I mean, you can be lonely in a marriage, you can be lonely in a crowd, 
you can be lonely in a city, you know, if you feel like someone does not have your back, um, someone's not looking after you, um, and you're not really connecting kind of in, a, in an authentic way with someone, that can feel really lonely. Um, so I felt like I needed to learn how to be alone and associate that more with the solitude state than the loneliness state. And one of the ways I tried to do that, since I was not used to being alone, was I went on a wilderness trip for 30 days <laughs> down a river, and I spent about half of that time totally alone, you know, trying to um, access just some bravery around that and um, uh, a sense of self-reliance, you know, that I could kind of paddle my own boat now and not be so afraid to do it. About that. Do you get the sense that when you do a thing like a 30-day retreat or a five-day something or even a two-hour meditation or one hour of critical deep work that those moments, it's like you multiply time because even though it seems like maybe you did less usually than normal, those moments are things you remember months, years later. Like I did this thing for four hours because we don't normally go into those deep thought states. So it's like you're multiplying time and making it more valuable than it would have been. I think that that makes sense to me. Yeah, there's a pretty high learning curve, you know, when you're doing something like that with a lot of intention and it's in a it's in an environment that maybe feels unfamiliar. Um, uh, and you have to be really alert to your surroundings and really pay attention. And that that does seem to expand our sense of time. Yeah. Deep work. Cal Newport's deep work. <laughs> One thing during your relationship, did you feel like as it was uh, coming to an end, did culture uh, come into account at all? Like the current, let's say, United States, was there anything about the moment of the current time versus 20 years ago that may have impacted that? And that may also be causing more heartbreak for people in this moment than 20 years ago. Gee, good question. Um, actually, divorce rates are quite a bit lower than they were 20 and 30 and 40 years ago um, among college-educated people. They're still really high among people who haven't completed college. So there's a big kind of um, socioeconomic divide there. Um, so, I, I mean, in some ways, because of that, I felt a little more isolated. You know, I, I didn't know a lot of my friends who were divorced. Um, I think that um, it felt like a very, and I think heartbreak does often feel like a very singular experience. You know, like, oh, we're, we're so self-obsessed when it happens and self-absorbed and we can't stop thinking about, you know, how this is gonna affect me and what does this mean for my future and me, me, me. <laughs> um, but it turns out that it's really a universal experience and and just even talking about it, I think can, can make it feel like a less isolating and lonely experience. Um, and that's part of why I wanted to write this book you know, I, I just didn't want to um, keep a lot of secrets anymore. I think, you know, it was important to say, hey, I'm hurting. This hurts. Uh, I know other people are hurting too. Can we, can we talk about these things? That's kind of cool. Like maybe there's a heartbreak forum out there. Uh, actually, they're guaranteed there's probably. <laughs> yeah, guarantee. <laughs> guarantee. There's really a lot of heartbreak music you can listen to. <laughs> that's true. And that's, that's helpful. A, that's a huge category. That might be one of the top categories for music, frankly. I think so, especially country yeah. music. <laughs> <laughs> My heart got broken, but I'm okay. <laughs> That's pretty good. Now, um, did you do you see 
when there's a heartbreak and there's two people, is there shared elements of heartbreak among both people at all times? Is it possible for one person to have full heartbreak and the other person to not join in the experience at all? Probably so. I think people experience their their separations, their their um, ends of relationships really differently. For one person, it may be like, phew, thank goodness I'm out of that relationship. And the other person might be like, oh my God, what just happened? And I think I think actually it's often that way. I don't think it's um, I don't think people are usually on the exact same page about separating. Um, usually, one person wants it more, and that makes it really hard. And I so I think each person experiences it in a different way. Whereas the person who's leaving might feel guilt, you know, might feel badly about it, or might not. You know, might be like, you know, what actually everyone's going to be fine. The kids are going to be fine. Everything's fine here yay, we're all better off, you know, and tell themselves a story about that. And I think that happens a lot too. The story's not shared in that case. The story's right. not shared, no. <laughs> right, because right. if it was more shared, then it wouldn't be such a thing. Yeah. There wouldn't be that impetus for that. Yeah, and that's really destabilizing when you're used to sharing experiences and emotions with your partner. And all of a sudden you have a totally different take on what just happened. And it can lead to a ton of conflict, right? I mean, divorce is one of the most stressful experiences, partly because often there is a lot of conflict. You know, what are, what are you going to do about um, child custody? What are you going to do about your shared assets? Um, you know, who gets Christmas? Who, you know, who gets the TV? I mean, you know, all of these things can be super high conflict. Mm -hmm. It's like every day you're with somebody and you eat half of a papaya with them. And they take half the papaya and you eat half and you're doing this for a long time. And then one day they don't get the papaya or they eat the whole thing. <laughs> they take like, the whole papaya with yeah. them. <laughs> is, this is ridiculous. Wait. I like this food. <laughs> what happened to my papaya? Yeah, we were doing that daily. It's something of that nature. It's yeah, like yeah. There's a lot to adjust to. There's, You have to, in some ways, it's almost like a brain injury where you have to relearn how to move through the world in a totally new way. And that means different friends, different social configurations. You might have different housing. You know, you're going to spend way maybe less time with your kids than you're used to spending if you have kids. Um, it's really, really, really a tough adjustment. Now, hormones are heightened at young age. Let's say there is a 16-year-old right now that is cautious about their relationships because they know about the potential for a heartbreak. What might you tell this 16-year-old such that they would go into their relationship not being over uh, limited in their mm -hmm. actions? Yeah. Unfortunately, I do think a lot of people are so afraid of being hurt that it's a block to intimacy. And often that happens when someone's already experienced a heartbreak and they don't want it to happen again. Um, so uh, it's, it's important, I think, in, in that instance to say that without heartbreak, there can also be no love. And you have to be willing to take some risks in order to let love into your heart too, because you don't want to go through life cutting yourself off from that you know, incredible joy. And while heartbreak can be a really difficult experience, um, it is possible to recover from it. And that's why I wanted to write this book also, because I feel like I 
uh, have I've tested in the book. I test a lot of ways to get better and feel better, and I look at the science for that. And I think um, I think that there are a lot of ways actually to sort of speed up your pain, the, the cycle of pain, and 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 feel recovery at the end. If someone goes through the cycle of pain and is heartbroken, does that make them? How can they come out of that not being closed off to any future potential for heartbreak ever from like a, I'm going to put a barrier here so that that doesn't occur again? Well, I think all I can do is talk to my experience about that. And I feel like after my cycle of heartbreak and my cycle of pain, I actually feel more ready to let love into my heart than I did before. I feel like the experience of heartbreak has taught me about the full range of our emotions, the full range of feeling alive. I feel like now that I have suffered, I am more sensitive to the suffering of others. I feel like I'm a better listener. I'm more empathetic. Um, I'm more interested in their experience of suffering themselves and other people. Um, and I feel like I'm able to be present for them in a way that I wasn't necessarily before. I like that message of the full range because I thought that some individuals live life in a small range. Right. So their ups are here, the downs are here, and there's nothing. And then the range go could go from super stupendous to anguish and heartbreak, which is way more range, which when we work out muscles at the gym, you don't really want to do a small little movement. You want to do a full movement because you're working out the whole muscle. That's how we're built. So if we always go through this small range, it's like such a like a closed life in a way. It, it is. It really is. And if you can feel the lows, you know, rest assured, you can also feel the highs. And if you cut yourself off from the lows, you're probably also cutting yourself off from the highs and you're going through life in sort of a numb state, which I think is, kind, you know, kind of where I was actually, you know, for the, those last unhappy years of my marriage. And so um, it was really nice to break out of that and just feel like, oh my God, there's a lot of amazing beauty out here. There's amazing love. I have more capacity for love than I did before. And it took me a while to get there, but now I really feel it. Change is a big deal. Were there, what sorts of people did you go to or have you resonated with after the fact, scientists or people you know that you connected with their story or their conceptual understanding? Yeah, that was really interesting. Almost all the scientists I talked to, the ones who study lab animals, for example, or the ones who analyze blood, or the ones who image brains, they all shared with me their own stories of heartbreak. And their own heartbreaks have in many ways informed the science that they do and the work that they do. So um, I found that really validating to talk to them, to have them say, yeah, you know, these, these experiences you're having, they're really... Um, normal. They're a normal part of, you know, the mammalian brain system <laughs> is supposed to sort of freak out when we lose attachments. And, um, and so it was very comforting in a way to talk to them and to meet, meet them. So I, I had a really good time um, in this laboratory of voles. And voles are like these little hamsters. And there's a scientist at University of Colorado, her name's Zoe Donaldson. And she, what she does is she she puts these voles, like a, a male and female vole together and they mate and they partner. And then she takes one away. 
So she kind of like creates this little vol divorce and she studies how long it takes them to kind of adjust to this pain, how long it takes them to get over it. Um, if there are ways that she can actually manipulate their brains um, through um, like little, um, she actually puts this kind of a virus in their brain that opens up some um, cells and neurons in their brains. And then she can fire those cells to make it um, easier for them to get over <laughs> their divorce. Um, she's looking at possible drugs that she can develop that might speed up this recovery process. And, uh, and then of course, you know, what happens if you take one of these divorced voles, will they get happier if you um, put them in a cage with a lot of their friends? And, or their siblings, like if they can just like be social again, can that sort of help them recover faster? So that was one, one example of a lab that I visited that was super interesting. There's a lot of value to having a social group or people that so you much. connect back with, right? So much, yes. It's like a base. You have like a tree and it has the ground base to grow back on. So if the wind knocks out part of the tree, okay, I got my ground base that I'm based on and then I'll grow back further. I thought of a good one here. What what do you call a vole who has just gone through a divorce? What was that? That was a divorce. <laughs> Anybody? I'm taking credit for that. Well, and also vole is an anagram of love. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Dang. Right. There right. you go. Who so they're, they're a good one to study. They're <laughs> un, like, like us, voles are actually um, largely pair bonding. They're a, a very monogamous um, species. So scientists love to study them for insights into human behavior and human brains. Oh, that's one thing. I thought of that. Uh, pair bonding, I've always taken account of. It's a strong pull factor. It can only occur a certain number of times. It's almost like, a, I think about it like a spring. It can only spring power so many times. Uh, do you, um, is pair bonding as strong in those who have had many, 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 many relationships? And um, is it not uh, a priority to maintain some level of pair bonding over time or else that jovial nature that comes with that is kind of evaporated? You know, I think humans are really, really capable of love and capable of pair bonding at any age and at any stage of life. So um, I, I, my dad has been married five times and you know each time he falls just as much in love as the time before. Doesn't matter whether you're 70, whether you're 30, whether you're 16, um, love feels largely the same um, in all these different stages of life. Fair. Now, what um, category of books do you normally tend to resonate with? Do any of them come into the category of, have you read like relationship books or mm -hmm. like uh, social sociology or like that? Have you gone into that category before? Yes. I, well, especially with my heartbreak, I started reading a lot of Buddhism because I felt that that was very um, full of wisdom for going through a hard time. Sort of this mindfulness, you know, that, that we can recognize that these really, really uncomfortable, difficult feelings are transient you know that they will pass and that if we can um, kind of get out of our ego a little bit through meditative and mindful states um, we can feel like our own 
problems are put into perspective a little bit. You know, maybe our egos are not the most important thing in the world. Maybe we can feel more connected, you know, to other living things. I, for me, it was, I spent a lot of time in nature and reading nature books too. So I would say, you know, reading about the science of, of that, which is something I've been really interested in, reading about the science of awe, you know, how when we experience beauty and awe, that can also make our, our own problems feel a little bit less significant. When Buddhism is cool, I've gone to a couple of gatherings where they told me I was already enlightened. A few people I joined in, they said, <laughs> you seem like you're already enlightened, but welcome aboard. One time I joined in on a group and uh, I was able to provide my insight. And then they did the chant, which was nice social grouping. And I could be, got to be part of that. Did you take part in any chants as well? I didn't, but I think chanting is one of those sort of collective experiences of awe. You know, if we're with a group of people and we're doing something shared and in unison and beautiful. So um, dancing, singing, um, you know, different kinds of art making, looking at the Milky Way, you know, with your tribe <laughs> sitting around the campfire. These are all things that are incredibly comforting, I think. Um, it's, sociologists and psychologists have studied this effect. Um, there's something very powerful about being in a group of people experiencing something that's shared. Mm -hmm. Makes us feel less lonely, for sure. We want to be part of the larger thing. Yeah, and if it's something powerful like that, it really it bonds us to each other. Pair bonding, if you will, a kind of pair bonding of sorts. Group bonding, yeah. Group bonding. Oh, that's true. Yeah, a pair bonding would just be with one individual. <laughs> One thing I would want to check, if you had a megaphone to all people on the planet, what is one message you would want them to take away about heartbreak, how to look at it or look past it once you're beyond it? Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, we tend to not take heartbreak seriously enough and that we need to learn how to take it more seriously because it does have very... Um, very deep consequences for our physical and mental health. And so I would say if you know someone who's heartbroken, you know, reach out to them, um, be a friend to them because they really do need you. And if you're going through your own heartbreak, take it seriously, do everything you can to engage in trying to get better, trying to calm your nervous system, you know, trying to spend time with your friends and trying to find some meaning and purpose in your life. And then if you have kids, help them prevent heartbreak by teaching them emotional skills, uh, how to communicate with each other, how to feel their emotions and express them in a healthy way so that maybe we can all help hurt each other a little bit less in the future. On the point of helping, I just remembered what I was going to mention earlier. If someone does appear to be heartbroken, what can we see as an external third party? Are they going to be posting more online? Are they going to be posting less? Are they going to be uh, <laughs> seeming to have anguish in public? Are they going to be more talkative? What might we look for? I think, you know, people respond in all different ways. But, um, you know, if you're in touch with your friends, uh, you'll probably hear if someone's had a big heartbreak. They'll tell you. <laughs> They'll tell you. And uh, one way or another. So just, uh, you know, be there for them. Be a good listener. Try to um, try to help them do something fun and meaningful and uh you know don't um don't just um don't just forget about them you know tell them reassure them that you're there for them that's a good one i've done that with some individuals and they are now back rolling <laughs> once again smoothly all right way to go florence i would like to thank you for having participated 
in this show describing us what goes on in heartbreak the book that you have written and giving us a sense of empathy for those in the condition and ourselves when we can be in the condition of heartbreak thanks armin great to be here cool and we are out